everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin, and I am not going to hold you very long. This is going to be coming out the week of the Thanksgiving break. I say Thanksgiving with air quotes because we understand that though it is a holiday rooted in Um, extermination of entire macro race of people. It is oftentimes for people in America, a time where they are able to have time off to spend with their friends and family. So I didn't want to go into too much history today. I thought I would talk about something that comes up often when I am, you know, doing lectures. And especially I would say like at the end of a lecture, like if it's a with a group of people I don't know, or who, you know, don't know me, don't take my class, um, let's say like at a library or an event like that. And, or sometimes at the end of classes that I teach during the term, and we're almost at the end of the term now. But I wanted to talk about this idea of questioning, like where we go from here, and what people can do in general. And I guess it's hard to frame how I want to ask it or how I'm trying to position it because I do get asked from people who want to try to be allies in change, right? So that's not just for any demographic, any one demographic of people, but just people who want to be more mindful of how they engage each other, how they think about history, how they think about current events and are questioning and unlearning the things that they thought they knew about their own cultural group, racial history, um, and those experiences of people who don't have the same experiences as them, even if they do share commonalities in culture. And so what I always like to tell people initially is that it is not on the marginalized to tell you how to fix a system that they have no control over. So what I mean by that is that even though I know people are asking me from a well-meaning perspective, right, um, because they want to know, I always like to remind people that I am Black, and I mean Black American, I am a descendant of enslaved people in this country, I am a woman, and therefore I am double oppressed and the systems that are in place are not things that I control, that I benefit from, or that people who have those identities in common with me control or benefit from. So I like to put it back on other people and say, you need to decide what you want to do. I have done my part by sharing the information with you in the form of a lecture that you saw me give or a class that you took with me that we were in learning community space together, a conversation that we had, a, um, you know, you listening to the podcast, right? And some of you may be thinking the same thing, like, what do I do now? Like, where do I go from here? And I would say, you know, I wanted to, well, I wanted to talk about how some things that you may do, right? Because some of you may find yourselves asking that question of yourself or other people around you. I would say that one of the biggest things to understand initially is that 
most people do occupy some space of privilege. Now we know that privilege is a spectrum and that, you know, for example, I've talked about this before, even though I don't have racial or gender privilege, I do have educational privilege, right? So that is one area that I do have. Um, most people do have some aspect of privilege or they have different um, pockets of privilege in their daily lives. And so when you do have a pocket of privilege in a space where other people don't have that privilege, it is on you to take the initiative to do what's in the best interest of everybody around you. So what I mean by that is if you have some information right? That can help other people who don't have that information because they don't have the privilege of that knowledge. It's on you to share that information with them. It could be something just as simple as letting people know, hey, there's a scholarship that's available for, you know, writing an essay about, you know, how to make the city of San Diego more sustainable. It's a, you know, thousand dollar scholarship like having that information is a privilege in some spaces so telling other people about it now again I know some of you may have initially thought right now with that example I literally just made up well why would I tell other people about the scholarship right like I want to win the scholarship but that's part of the problem right and that's why when I've been talking in the past podcasts about how race and class and this you know and how capitalism plays into those things it really is about people who don't want to share resources. So people who are otherwise well-meaning, but they don't really want to lose out on what they believe to be economic prowess or access to resources for them and their families. And so despite them saying that they want to be allies, it's not translating to the practices that they're espousing. If you are from a group that has more macro experiences of privilege, like racial privilege, for example. One of the way means I've talked a lot the last year about um, redlining and housing covenants and things like that and sundown towns. And so one of the things you could do is extending yourself to helping your non-white friends, family, community members, even again, people you don't know yet, like meeting people. And giving your time to help stand in for people who are not white when their home is being appraised, right? Because again, we know that banks still devalue properties based on the people living in it. There's plenty of stories that have come out as recently as 2021 where black homeowners were having their homes, you know, undervalued by appraisers. And it wasn't until they had like a white friend stand in for them. They took down all the pictures of their family and themselves, took down their ethnic art. And all of a sudden the home was worth all this extra money. So making yourself available for things like that cost you nothing. You standing there and, you know, answering to someone else's name or pretending to be their cousin or you know showing the house for the appraisal because they're out of town that costs you nothing and you're not breaking the law by doing that you're helping enforce if you want to be like pro-national about it right you're helping enforce the constitution you're keeping businesses and financial institutions from continuing the cycles of racism and oppression that they have been getting away with 
for a very long time. And that even though they can't do it on paper, we know that they are still finding loopholes to doing that. So giving your time in that way is important. Another thing I like to tell people is getting involved with their city council, understanding the measures that are coming up, educating, helping educate people on what a ballot measure means, right? Something even just as simple as, you know, reading, excuse me, telling people to read the book that comes in the mail from the state that explains what a yes means or what a no means or what this option means for voting, what this option means, what this candidate says and what their track record is and what that other candidate says and what their track record is. Like that time is a privilege. And I mean, I've done that on, I did that more during, I think like 2020, I would like go through a part of the voter handbook and I would talk about what one thing meant, what the yes and what the no meant. But like going through those things help people because it helps them make informed decisions. It's very easy for most of us to buy into ads that we see for for a particular candidate, for advertisements that we see on any other media for a particular measure or for voting one way or the other. And, you know, oh, well, I support nurses and the nurses are supporting this. Like it's easy to get in played into those things but it's quite another to actually read and check references. And one of the biggest things I always tell my students is that a lot of people in this country for a very long time have counted on the fact that people don't cross check references and they don't read the source of the material, not what someone says it says again, because you have to be able to have someone you can trust to go through it with you. Right. But you should always take the opportunity to read the direct source for yourself or make resources available for people when there's someone who you can trust to do that within your community. Something else that you could do um, for those of you who had no people who are voting by mail is, you know, organizing a way to pick up ballots for people who don't have easy access to transportation or maybe other abled, right? And it's a hardship for them to get their ballot to the mailbox. Doing things like that help It's a space of privilege, right? With your ability and your access to transportation. One of the things that I like to do as a historian, I mean, I have the privilege of working for a community college district where the employees only have to pay $2 to take any class that we want on the schedule. So that's a huge privilege, right? Because usually a class would be, you know, $150. It's only $2 to take as an employee, So one of the things I do is I like to take other ethnic history classes. And I would say the same thing of other people who, even if you finished your degree, you finished your certificate program, go back to your local community college and take a course, learn about another perspective. You know, I had been, when I was in college and I was getting my degrees, I only had one class that was, would fall under like Asian studies. I took another one at the community college because I really wanted to learn more about that perspective. It would have been very easy for me just to go online and see what people are tweeting or see what people are sharing about on Instagram. But it's quite another to like learn the roots of how these people as a macro racial group have been marginalized and how that relates to the things that they're dealing with today as a macro racial community. But also it enables me to make my courses more enriching because I do teach classes that are about the um, beginnings of race and ethnicity and the impacts that that has had. So by me taking an Asian perspective studies course, it helps enhance my material for 
other students who will take my class. And so all of you can do that. I mean, community colleges, even if you don't want to pay like the full fee, right? Because I know, like I said, like a lot of these are like three unit classes. So they could be like, you know, upwards of $150 to take the class, but you can audit the class. So again, like that's like information that is sometimes a privilege to have. Auditing a class means that you generally pay like, I think like a third, if that of the price, and you don't get a final grade. Like it's meant to be for people who want the information, but aren't doing it for any type of educational program or career advancement. So you don't get assigned a grade at the end of the term. And you pay a very, very small fee to take the class because of your, you know, you're still taking a seat in the class. So, you know, a lot of you could take or audit a class and do that, right? Um, to learn a different perspective. You could take a black studies class. You know, I teach them at Grossmont. So please feel free to take a course with me there online or in person. But we also have Asian studies courses. We have in, um, native indigenous studies courses, which that's next on my list of things to do. We have um, Latin American studies courses. I've taken a few of those myself. Dr. Carlos Contreras is the best. I highly recommend taking them with him. Um, but you know, there are things that you can do to further your education that doesn't have to be expensive. Another thing is to do, pres or excuse me, attend presentations at public spaces, right? Like libraries are a great resource when they have cultural events, volunteering your time at a cultural event, taking your kids to a cultural event of a group that you don't identify with. Again, I think that a lot of people are, of course, you know, tend to go toward things that they are more familiar with, which is great. But it's also a good thing to take your kids into spaces where they are not in the cultural majority. Take them to a space where they may be the only kid who is of their ethnic or cultural group or language group or racial group so that they can learn to be in those spaces and to share identities of commonality with other people who they don't, who may, they may not think they have anything in common with, like at face value. So, you know, taking your kids to a Polynesian festival, even if you're not, don't identify as Pacific Islander, taking your kids to an um, African drumming circle, right? Like there are a lot of things available through Balboa Park that are free that happen throughout the year, not just in the summertime. You could do those things. And I think that when you, and as someone, you know, I've, done education with kids before but when you have kids in those spaces who grow up not always being in a cultural majority it really does teach them to learn to talk to people and to learn not to see or not to think of um, visible differences as something that should stop them from speaking to people or asking questions or learning about the person to find the things that they do have in common. And so that's another thing that I think is a great way to help, you know, help you do your part, right? Like if you have access to children in your life through them being your own kids, or maybe nieces and nephews, grandchildren, things like that. You know, one thing that I was invited to do um, earlier this year was I was invited to come out to La Jolla Country Day and um, there was a great professor and a great teacher and Mr. Schulman and he invited me over to talk to his class and that was a way that you know he was able to bring the material that I was talking about on um, the life of Afro-Germans during the Third Reich but they brought that material to his students 
right? And I was, you know, of course, happy to do that. I love doing stuff like that. It's great practice for me too. But, you know, talking to people after presentations and asking them questions about it, asking if they'll come, you know, to your classroom if you are a teacher or if they can come to your campus. One of the things I like to do is because I like to read, you know, history related things also is, you know, also keeping ahead of like books that are coming out. Um, I love getting those little like, and I understand, again, it's a privilege for my job, right? So publishers do send me little pamphlets that talk about new scholarships that's coming out. But I like to read through those and then see like, oh, what books am I interested in reading about? And, you know, if it's a book that the library doesn't have, then I can try to take it upon myself to purchase the book myself or check it out from the public library or, you know, order a desk copy of it so I can read it. And again, using that as a way to get the information and then share it with other people through the work that I do and that all of you can do as well, right? Because these these public spaces have free access to materials and utilizing library services is another thing that I think is a big deal. I know a lot of people tend to like to go to more public spaces like coffee shops to do, you know, like studying and, you know, um, spend time writing and organizing things. But I would suggest that a lot of people try to move some of that time to public library spaces, because even if you're not checking out books, you being in the library is like a matter of record. So if people don't go to the libraries, then they start doing, when people want to defund them, libraries, when they want to try to say we need to cut hours or cut resources, they tend to look at how much traffic the library is actually getting. And so I like to advocate for people doing that type of, you know, study time at a public library as opposed to like a coffee shop. For those of you who are within the communities that are marginalized and you constantly feel like people are questioning why you should have equal rights and access and economic, you know, that you should be able to have more economic advantages because of the history of you not having those economic privileges, right? Like with the case for reparations, etc. I like to remind people who are from those groups that sometimes <laughs> what you can do is remind people that they don't have the scholarship background to be able to engage you in conversation about things. And what I mean by that is scholarship, not as in like funding money, but don't get, I think it's called seahorsing, but don't get involved with people who haven't done the work, haven't done the reading, and are simply trying to perpetuate their opinions as if they're historical fact. And that has been a lesson that I've had to learn this year. Um, I had a falling out with someone who was a friend and they had a very particular opinion about something that they have no idea what they're talking about. They were solely basing their opinion on their emotions. They haven't done any reading about the subject. They don't understand the long history of the subject that we were talking about. And I had to tell her, you don't, you quite literally don't know enough about a topic for me to engage you in conversation past this point. And so it's not always with people who aren't, you know, close to you. It's not always with people who you don't know and don't love and don't have relationships with. Sometimes it's going to be people who you do know and do have relationships with and you'll have to tell them the conversation is going to have to stop. Like I cannot engage you in this conversation anymore. You haven't done the work. You haven't done the reading and it's not on me 
to sit here when you clearly don't want me to tell you about the things that I have read and that I have researched and all the hours and hours and months and years that I've spent learning about this topic, you're committed to just throwing it away or thinking that it's the same thing as your opinion. For those of you who have done that work, what you can do is disengage the conversation. That's one of the biggest things that I've had to do this year. And I think it has really changed my frame of reference for how I engage in these conversations. Because again, when I'm teaching about a topic, that's a very different space because generally students understand that they don't, and not always, right? But generally they understand that they haven't done the scholarship to have a definitive opinion about something right and some of them don't some of them think that again same thing that their opinion is equal to my research that I've done on these things and that's not the case but when it comes to people when you're not in an educational situation right like it is my job to help facilitate learning so I create an environment with my students where we can ask questions and talk about these things and work through the opinions that we thought we had about them before and then talk about the things that have shifted now that we have new information. But that's in a particular environment. When I'm not doing that, like in that environment, I also have to be willing to turn it off and say, er, nope, I can't do this right now. Because you know when you're engaging somebody about a topic, if they are interested in the topic and can hear what you're saying, can appreciate your research and also have read things about a topic that they can contribute to the dialogue, right? You know the difference between someone who's done that work and someone who's just talking about their opinion and trying to say that it's the same thing as all the years of research that you've spent or your lived experience. And with that being said, too, you know, another thing, too, is we have to realize that even when we have lived something, it doesn't mean that it's the definitive experience of everybody who was also there at the same time. So like I tell you just, you know, as an analogy, like I grew up in military housing, but the way I experienced living in military housing at my home was different than someone who lived a block over or even next door who had a completely different life experience before we were neighbors or lived in the same housing development, right? Like that's an example of what I'm talking about. So even if you have lived a similar experience because of religion or culture, race, ethnicity, gender, you know, ability, whatever, that it's not the definitive story of everybody. And that we don't know everything about the many layers of people and the many, many millions of people who share with us a part of an identity or a part of our identity. It doesn't mean that we have the complete same experiences. So like, being black in San Diego isn't the same experience as being black in Jackson, Mississippi, isn't the same experience as being black in um, Jacksonville, Florida, isn't the same experience of being black in New York City. Like those are all different experiences. And so that's another thing I think to take into consideration when we are all engaging each other and thinking, well, you know, what experience am I bringing into a conversation or what is my unique perspective on this information that I'm getting now and how is this information being cut with my perspective and how is it affecting how I analyze this information what I do and don't think is relevant or important what I do or don't think is 
necessary to know or to learn all those things are shaped by our perspectives or sometimes people would say it's shaped like by our biases sometimes bias is used as like a pejorative word like it's a bad thing but it's really just about a varied perspective and I think one of the last things I'll say about this is one of the things you can do is patronize small bookstores (laughs) go to small bookstores used bookstores spaces that are in in the community I know we I'm not gonna use any (laughs) business names no free promo but I know that it's very easy for many of us to utilize big box retailers and convenience based retailers to get our books and our groceries and you know the housewares that we want and the furniture that we want and the clothing that we want but especially when it comes to books, I would say where you can try to utilize smaller bookstores. Bookstores are huge and they are community centers beyond just being booksellers. They are spaces where people do readings and share thoughts and communicate with each other. And, you know, there are places where you can get books that are out of print you know, learn new perspectives, see something from an author that you didn't know you might like, right? Or be recommended to somebody who you didn't know you might like, as opposed to going to, you know, a bigger box book retailer and, you know, sort of just, you know, being there and enjoying the space, but not really having the same sense of community, right? It's more of a, capital like a capitalist model like you come in you buy the product you leave you know you can sit down maybe there's some coffee but it's not meant for you to really be like engaging in conversation with people who are doing readings and who are talking about their work or the things that they've read like a lot of us just kind of go in and do our own individual things whereas in more community-based bookstores it's quite the opposite you have a lot more community dynamic engagement there are spaces where people do have important talks about you know legislation that's affecting their community having rising people who are getting involved in politics talking about their platforms or what they want to do for their community those spaces are are very big. So getting involved in not only just, you know, buying from small bookstores, but getting involved in community organizing centers and community centers that are, you know, that are not necessarily like run by the city government, like, like a rec center. Like, yeah, those are great. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but right. Like going to like a community, like community run one that's run by somebody in the community itself has a greater impact. So yeah, I know that, you know, this week is a week of rest for many of you. And I know that for a lot of you, you will be with friends or family chosen or otherwise. And I hope that despite the roots of the time off, that you are able as working people, as marginalized people, to be able to use it as a space of rest and remembering what it was built on, right? That's, we have the privilege to be able to rest, unfortunately, because of that dark history. So I will leave you off on that. Um, something positive, something positive. And it was kind of like a, I don't want to end with the last thing I said. 
<laughs> but I'll say that I'll be making my Nana's sweet potato pie recipe. Yes. Those of you who have had my sweet potato pie, it's my dad's mom's recipe, my Nana. Yes, Martha Hood Pass. And it is the best sweet potato pie recipe ever. And no, I won't be sharing. <laughs> yes, I gave it to my cousin Pebbles. Hey, Pebbles. I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but I gave her the recipe because she asked me for it. But we're literally family. So unless your last name is Hood, Martin, or Pass, no, you can't have it. But um, yeah, I hope that you all have a great week. I'll see you on the next episode, y'all. Bye.